I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. And this week on the show, I'm joined by Clay Newcomb to discuss and recap my Arkansas public land mule back deer hunting adventure. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. And today we're continuing the series in which I'm recapping my pretty wild season of traveling hunts. Uh, As I've discussed, I've been on a journey of sorts this year going across the country to different regions of whitetail country to learn about how people hunt in that unique place. Meeting with a regional expert to dig into what types of tactics they use where they hunt, how they find word of hunt, how the deer act in their area, and what the hunting culture is there too. So that's what I did. I spent a day in Arkansas with Clay Newcomb and James Lawrence, learning about the old ways of hunting the mountains down south, still hunting and hunting terrain features and finding public land deer and big woods country. Really interesting stuff. So I got to spend a morning with Clay, an afternoon talking to James, and then we actually went in on muleback deep into this public land section and spent the next three and a half days myself on my own trying to kill a buck out there. So that's the story we're going to share. It's a good one. It's a fun one. It was a heck of a hunt. It gave me a really interesting glimpse into deer hunting in the South, into some of the influences that Clay has had that uh, come from a time long ago and why there's, there's a certain appeal and certain value to doing things as a hunter that maybe we don't need to do anymore, but have value in being less efficient in hearkening back to a bygone era, talking about getting a little taste of what it was like back in the day for somebody like Daniel Boone going in on horse or mule and staying out there for a week or two, hunting deer, hunting bears, whatever it might be. I got just the tiniest little glimpse of what that life might've been like. And I'll tell you what, it was pretty cool. So That's the plan for today. We do also, in addition to Clay, have my buddy Tyler Emmett. He was one of the cameramen on this trip. 
And I wanted to have him on the show to help give some color and some perspective on the hunts because he was there with me, like right next to me during the hunts on my own. But he was in the airport, hopping on a plane, and timing ended up getting goofy. So he's in here. He shares a couple quick thoughts, but then has to bail because of the flight. So it didn't really work out, but he's here. You'll hear a bit from him, but just understand that's why he sounds a little distant. That's why he wasn't in much of the show. But uh, regardless... I think you're going to like this one. Me and Clay get into some interesting debates around scent control, too, that you're not going to want to miss. So uh, with that said, let's get into it. Thank you for listening. All right. With me now, I've got Clay Newcomb and Tyler Emmett, and uh, the both of you guys were with me on this heck of, a, heck of an adventure in Arkansas. And so I appreciate you taking the time to come here and help me recap it a little bit. Rather than doing the, you know, how you doing, what's new, yada, 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 I just want to get right into the story because we've got a lot to cover. Uh, And Clay, this trip began, mostly, I think it began when we got to James Lawrence's place. He's a a mentor of yours, and he was going to help us kind of set our sights on what we should be doing, what we should be thinking about. Uh, what I should be targeting. There was a lot of things like that that we were hoping to chat with him about at his place before we headed to the mountain. Can you can you start us out, Clay, just jumping right into to who James is and how he was an influence on you? Sure. Yeah, so James Lawrence, people that have listened to some of my stuff in the past may have met James Lawrence. He's been on some podcasts with me and stuff, but James is in his... I believe James is 73 years old, and he's just one of these guys that has lived his entire life in the same spot and has been a hunter since he was a kid and has really dedicated himself to being the best that he can be with the resources he has in the place he lives. You know, I mean, he's never traveled to hunt other than with me in, in the last five years. He's, he went with me to Canada, whitetail deer hunting. Other than that, he's probably not hunted out of the county he lives in, you know. And I always – I love those kind of guys. Yeah. I really do. Their, their world is not propped up by, you know, kind of – I want to say exotic travel. You know, that's probably not a good descriptor, but uh, – He's just he's just dedicated himself to what what he's got, and so he's we're we're down in the Washita Mountains, and James is from the area that I grew up in, so my hometown, which I don't live in anymore, and that's in the the mountains of Western Arkansas, and it's a difficult place to whitetail hunt, and is getting increasingly better. I believe we have probably better deer populations right now than we've had and even since when I was a kid but just difficult hunting conditions you know rugged terrain and just vast stretches of continuous hardwoods pines and just closed canopy timber like you would find in a lot of places in the east but the mountains make it harder because you've got a lot of topographic differences and changes and and um and so james has he's developed a style of hunting that really he kind of came up with on his own and his story is pretty unique because his family they as in the tradition of where we come from they ran hounds on deer and still do to this day people down there it's legal and it's great i absolutely love 
running deer with dogs. At, so James grew up with that, but from an early age, he he didn't like it. Not for some ethical reason. He just, you know, he just did. He just wanted to go out in the woods and hunt them. And his uncle taught him how to track deer in the leaves, which is difficult. James learned how to still hunt, which is you know just moving through the timber very slow and going to good areas where he thinks deer are and just spending time on the ground moving number two he he hunted out of tree stands some but just learning he he learned how to use topographic features where these how these mountains funnel these deer into certain predictable areas year after year and he learned how to hunt these saddles and pinch points and heads of hollows and flats and uh, he's a big scrape hunter. He always liked hunting scrapes. And uh, so, yeah, that's what we talked to James about when you came down, Mark. Yeah, and, and I I was so glad that you were willing to introduce me to him and let us spend some time there because it was it was eye-opening in a lot of ways. First and foremost, just seeing the success he's had down there. I mean, it's it kind of shocking when I was imagining the type of terrain he was hunting and, and how difficult it likely was. And you told me about it and then seeing you know, and hearing about what he does and how he's actually, I mean, he's really filled the walls up with a whole lot of great stories and deer. And, uh, that was great. But then just hearing from him, like just getting a chat with him. I mean, as you said to us prior to meeting him, he was as nice as you could get as welcoming as you could ever imagine someone like this could be. Um, I mean, just incredibly kind and generous with his time and his insight and he gave us, you know, me in particular, I know he, you've learned a lot from him over the years, but me in particular gave me a really quick rundown on some really helpful ideas for what I should be thinking about and planning for when I head into to hunt this kind of way. But I guess I, I probably should rewind just a little bit and set the stage more because, you know, we, we headed to James because he had hunted in the way that we were going to hunt. But to start, Clay, when I when we approached you, we, we we were talking last year, I think, and I said, "Hey, we've got this new show, and I think it'd be pretty cool to come down, hunt with you, and and get like a genuine Arkansas experience." Why why was the hunt that we ended up having that genuine Arkansas experience that you thought I should have? We because we were gonna take a mule, head into the head into the mountains of public land, camp out there. And, and hunt these hard-to-find big woods, big mountain deer in Arkansas. Why was that the experience you thought that I should have? Well, Mark, because I like you so much, I wanted to share the gold of Arkansas, that number one. Uh, no, there's a ton of different places we could have gone that would have been better. You know, <laughs> I mean, what we did, what we did was really probably the hardest way to kill a deer here. We we have a broad range of habitat and types of hunting in Arkansas. You know, you get over into the Arkansas Delta near the Mississippi River, and you've got as good a whitetail hunting there as probably anywhere in the country in certain stretches. I mean, really, it, it's like hunting the Midwest. And and then you get into so where I live in the Ozark Mountains up here on private land in the Ozarks, kind of some of these cattle pasture. Um, or, or, you know, cattle farm type private land hunting, we've got quite a few deer. 
I, you know, we could have gone hunting and I would have anticipated seeing seven to 12 deer a day, you know, and, and, but this, what I call interior mountain hunting is the most traditional style of hunting because that is what basically the, the first white Europeans that came here were doing. They were using equine animals and doing long hunts. And that is really what James did when he was younger. And he didn't do it because it was cool. Or he didn't do it because he was trying to replicate something. He did it just because that's that was a good way. And one of the most successful ways he knew how to kill deer was to use an equine animal, get back in as far as he could with as much supplies as he could carry, and stay back there and hunt. And a lot of times solo. And, um, so that's what he did. And I, I was always very intrigued by his stories and that kind of hunting. And so that's what I started doing five or six years ago under James. I've never, what's kind of sad is I've never actually hunted with James like that. You know, he's, uh, he's in great shape for his age, but he's, he's not, he's not like he was when he was 40 or 50, you know? And so we've not been able to do it together, but, but I've got mules. He used horses and he told me how he hunted and what he did. And, you know, he basically he would pack, he would use his horse to, to put panniers over it, which are big pouches that drape over a riding saddle, which is key. And you'd carry all your supplies and walk the horse in. And we're not hunting. This is not like the West. We do not have the big, vast country that the West has. So, you know, you might be walking in two to five miles and carry all your stuff with you. And then when you get there, you make your camp. And then once you get to camp and you have all your stuff unloaded, you've got a riding saddle on your animal and you can use that animal to ride or you can just leave your animal at camp and use it to haul everything out, including game, which is exactly what we did. I mean, we, uh, not to give away the, not to give away too much here, Mark, but <laughs> I mean, we, we kind of pulled it off just the way we hoped we would. Yeah. And it, it's fantastic. And it's a, it's a fun, I'm not going to say it's the most efficient way. I'm not going to say it's the best way, but you know, in 2021, with the way that we hunt, we absolutely every one of us there's it gets to choose the way we want to do something, and that is valuable. And to me, this kind of hunting is valuable, partly because of how much I love James, but but also because this is the most this is the way that guys would have been doing it back in the early 1800s when they were market hunting deer and bear, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. I want to dig into that more, uh, but maybe a little later since we only have Tyler for a little bit, I want to, I want to kind of pick your brain, Tyler. We, we, we got to bring you in on this and you got to meet James and you got to see and hear his stories. And then you were following along with us, capturing the experience as me and Clay did what he just described, which was we threw our gear on the mule on day one and we hiked into this big stretch of public land hiked all the way in, set up camp. What, what was your impression of this as we got kicked off? Um, well, it was great to go meet James, you know, in in the beginning kind of got just seeing his, uh, 
his garage full of, you know, antlers and deer. We got you could fire it up thinking it was going to be loaded with deer. But as we got kicked off, it was uh, a little slow. Um, and uh, it, maybe I was a little bit, sorry about the uh, noise. Um, I was a little bit, because uh, we didn't see much much uh, sign of deer. So I was maybe a little bit um, overzealous by seeing his garage and all the success he had. Granted, that was over a 55, 60 years of hunting or more. I can't remember how old he was or when he started hunting, but um, it was uh, it was cool to do it in this, you know, as you're saying, it's kind of it's not Western style, but kind of long hunting style to go out and camp and um, check out the landscape. But it was definitely, uh, uh, after a couple of days of scouting and hiking around, I was a little bit uh, nervous that we weren't going to be have success. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, James... His wall, like you said, is a lifetime uh, resume there. It, it definitely did give me even more hope than I was expecting because I thought going into this, man, this is going to be really hard. We're not going to see deer or very many at least. And, uh, you know, if if somehow this happens, it's going to be a miracle. And then we go to James's place, take a look at his uh, his wall there, and he starts telling some stories. And all of a sudden I started thinking, man, maybe it's better down here than I realized. Um <laughs> But we, we, we get up the next morning, we load up, go to a trailhead and then, you know, throw the panniers on the mule, load all of our stuff on there. We've got camping gear. We've got hunting gear. Uh, I'll tell you one thing I was surprised by clay was the fact that you run your climbing sticks unattached just randomly thrown all over the place and not back to that <laughs> come on mark come on i should have known this was going to come up I, I, I gotta give you a little i gotta give you a little crap for that one <laughs> <laughs> well i wouldn't say that that's entirely that's not my always mo but sometimes you got to stick them where you can stick them when you gotta you know panniers and you're trying to just cram stuff and little little Nooks and crannies. We, so. we caught you. We caught you're, you. You're also carrying a. Sorry, boys. Go ahead. I mean, we also were carrying all of our a lot of camera gear. Off, so your mule was carrying a lot of camera gear too. So you're just probably trying to. We were trying to just stuff anything we could in that mule. Oh yeah. And I, yeah. I thank your mule for that. Yeah. Yeah. Mule was super handy for all the heavy equipment we were bringing in there, and uh, I, I just thought it was really neat to get to. I've never done that. I've never been with any kind of stock animal, horse or mule going into hunt. I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever done that. So just having the, the added benefit of that was neat. And then there's just a certain, I mean, kind of how you talked about clay, how this whole style of hunting is a throwback and it's, it's much more for the experience than just the efficiency. Um, I just felt a certain allure to hiking into the mountains with with a critter like that just felt like i was tapping into something different something older something richer uh that i just remember walking in that morning and you know we we headed in at first light so the sun was still rising it was a beautiful orange sunrise on the horizon i remember the color of the sky mm -hmm. was was really notable and we're hiking along and i'm hearing the clip 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 kind of slowly working behind me and it was just, I just remember smiling. I have a distinct memory of just smiling and, and thinking in my head, man, this is, 
this is it. Like, this is pretty cool. And, and it was, we hiked in there, got to a spot where you thought would be a decent place to, to set up a spike camp. And we threw up tents and put your mule on a line. And then the idea was to try to get a late morning scouting slash hunting session in, uh, before, you know, before actually having an evening hunt. And the idea was to, to spend this part of the day with you, Clay, see what you do, see what your perspective would be on the landscape. Um, you would kind of share with me everything you think I should be thinking about, the ideas, the strategies, the tactics that might work here. Um, show me around. And then after that, I was going to head out on my own. So you and myself and then our two cameramen, Tyler and another guy, Joe, took off for a hike. Um, do you want to walk me through You know what was on your mind? Like, What was it that you wanted to show me? What were the most important ideas or tips or things? concepts that you in your mind were thinking man you got to get this across to mark for him to have success what were those key things as we were walking out there you know first of all when you're hunting like this or any kind of backcountry hunting where you're camping and hunting is you want to pick a campsite that is far enough away from where you feel like the game is that you're not going to spook them but also not so far away that you wear yourself out coming back and forth to camp and uh, I'd say we got close to right. We probably, I, I like to be about a half a mile from where I think I'm going to hunt. Because what you found out, because you guys ended up going in further than we anticipated, Mark, is that you guys were hiking like a mile and a quarter or something to get to where you were hunting. Or, or, or it around would be a mile. two miles, actually, to the farthest place eventually. Yeah, and, and that's a little bit too far just to to utilize to, to just be efficient but you kind of gotta it'd be better to be conservative than not because when you bring in an equine animal you're bringing in a little more disturbance than they're used to and you have a camp and you know you might have a fire so that was number one and we were on a big big long ridge top and essentially why i brought you there was we were going to hunt saddles and these saddles are essentially low spots, low swags, like the seat of a saddle, in between two high points on a ridge. So if you have a if you have a long ridge, that ridge is not going to be just flat all the way across the top. It's going to kind of go up and down and up and down. And those low spots, deer that are traveling from, let's say, the north side to the south side of the mountain, are going to travel through those saddles. And any given ridge might have multiple saddles on it. And that's what we were trying to capitalize on. And, and I said this before too, Mark. There, in any given set of mountains, there are probably 10 things that deer do every single day that is predictable. So this is just one of the things that they do. And you're trying to calculate the amount of time you have to hunt and say, I bet a deer is going to do this one thing during the time I'm hunting. And what we were doing was hunting saddles. And the reason I like the saddles high on these ridges is that the wind is consistent, typically. If you get off down on the side of the mountain, automatically your wind is much less predictable. And there are ways to predict what it'll do. And you can hunt the sides of mountains effectively for sure. But that was the main thing. And and what I was hoping to find was sign in some of these saddles. And the deer aren't going to 
make a ton of sign right in the middle of a saddle necessarily. You know, there might, but, but we were looking for, we were hoping to find some rubs. I was hoping to find a big scrape and one of the saddles we came through, which we really didn't, but we walked three quarters of a mile or so and found just a little bit of buck sign, a few acorns. And I had seen some deer in that area the weekend before I'd done a little bit of scouting before. And so we felt like there were some deer in the area, but certainly it's not the kind of place with your typical standards for assessing deer sign. You wouldn't go there and go, Holy cow, this place is smoking hot. I mean, at all. Would you agree, Mark? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And, and I think one of the, that was one of the biggest takeaways for me from our, our morning spent together was that you kept reiterating to me, you know, don't expect Michigan sign or Iowa sign or whatever, you know, one, I think, I think we decided we needed to make a chart or something where we would say one Arkansas rub equals 10 Michigan rubs, one Arkansas scrape equals 15 Michigan scrapes or something like that, because it's just so different. And I think that if you hadn't told me that I would have been much less confident in these areas, I would have been thinking, man, we got to keep looking because there's, there's nothing here. You know, one scrape means nothing to me at home. Um, but to me or to you, you're saying, Hey, one scrape here equals a lot back home. So that was very yeah. eye opening and, and helpful for me. And, you know, I want to reiterate too, that this was what I would call interior mountain hunting. Like you could go down into other areas in that County closer to disturbance, you know, where there'd be clear cuts, where there'd be cattle pastures, whether there was, you know, human disturbance and creating edge and different stuff. And, and you would find just number one, more deer. And so they would leave more sign. So this was interior mountain hunting, which is where there's the least amount of deer, but that's just where we were. So we kind of knew what to expect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That um, makes sense. Yeah. But I'd say th- that was the main thing we were working on here and, you know, just hunting these mountains. There's other, there's other things that you can look for, you know, benches, uh, the heads of these big hollows. So there's big, big, long finger, big, long ridges, and they have fingers that fall off these ridges. The heads of hollows, a lot of times there's game trails. And these fingers that fall off ridges are typically, you'll find, th- there might be a mile, a mile long ridge, and there might be five fingers that fall off of that ridge. And you might scout those fingers and and find one finger that has some buck sign and some acorns and you know deer move up and down that mountain on that finger that would be a good strategy but there, there's a lot of things you could do but we were hunting high saddles can you can you uh, elaborate a little bit on how you like to hunt the saddles because that was one of the things like as we started walking along and you were talking about the importance of these saddles which is something that james had reiterated as well um, you know, the thing I was wondering the most about was like, okay, there's a few saddles out here. I'm going to scout them. I'm likely going to spend some time in them, but what's the smartest way to actually set up on one? Um, that's where my head very quickly jumped up to, uh, what were your thoughts on that? When you're sitting one of these, what's the right way to think about how you position yourself, how you think about wind, how you expect deer to move through them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you just have to predict the wind based upon the prevailing wind direction and, and the forecast, you know, and if the wind's out of the north, you're going to want to sit set up on the 
on the southern edge of the saddle. So, you know, I mean, if you if you envision this, a saddle just as like a square, you know, I mean, it's got there's there's four four directions that you could go. You know, you would you would set up on the the downwind side of the saddle, hug that side, and then your access point whatever side of the saddle you're coming into it from, you're going to try not to walk through that saddle because ground sit in the mountains is, is critical because these deer don't, they're not smelling humans very often. And, you know, you can try to cover your ground scent. You can, there's stuff you can do, but still you, you hope to not have to cross through. So the ideal situation is that you would slip into a saddle and you would go to the favor, hug the favorable side so that, you know, 80% of the places that deer travels, if he comes through that saddle, you're going to be good on wind. And you just got to be able to see. You just, that's the main thing. You just, you just got to be able to see as much as possible in that saddle. And if you hunt these saddles year after year, a lot, you, you'll learn, okay, the deer typically hug that side over there. And maybe there would be nothing that would indicate that. That's just a inside of this micro environment. That's typically what they do. And the saddles that you were hunting were pretty big, uh, uh, bigger than most. You know, I think you could have probably shot a hundred, hundred plus yards in yeah. lots of places you were hunting, which isn't entirely normal. Usually you're hunting a saddle that maybe is 40, 50 yards across, you know, you could, um, you could bow hunt it almost. So, uh, those are the main things, Mark, just visibility to be able to see all the way across it and then just getting where the wind is most favorable. Yeah. Okay. So here's another thing then when it comes to these setups, I recall another one of these questions I had was when do you set up and post up in a spot like this and hunt a saddle versus doing what James had done a lot in the past in which, you know, we were talking about a lot with him and you and I were talking about, which was still hunting through these places. So actually creeping, creeping through the mountains on foot, hoping to see one. And you had told yeah. me, well, you know, you know, that's what James does, and sometimes you do that, but you also like to get up actually in a climbing saddle, you know, up in a tree and hunt a saddle too, which is what we just described. Um, can you elaborate on that? You know, why you choose to sit up in a tree more often than still hunt, and why James maybe still hunted a lot uh, and less so posted up? What, what's your take on that? You know, I think a lot of that is just personal preference. You know, you just have so much time to hunt and. And James spent a lot of his time still hunting on the ground, moving. And a lot of that was just personal preference. But I think I would do that more and do that more at the beginning of a hunt when I'm trying to scout. Because the great thing about being mobile and on the ground is, and still hunting, is that you are hunting. So you're in the game, you know, but you're also scouting. And what I would do is I might still hunt for a morning and all of a sudden find what I'm looking for, you know, find that saddle that's got some sign in it. And I go, okay, if I sit here for two days, I'm going to kill a deer and, and then get up at a tree and hunt. Um, so, and I think to James back, James was most actively still hunting in the sixties, seventies and eighties. And, there just weren't a lot of deer. So I think he learned that, man, I could, I can sit on the side of this mountain or in a tree for a long time and not see a deer. I got to go find one. 
I think now that we have more deer, it's probably not as critical to move and it's a little it's just more conservative to just sit in a tree and and wait for them. I, I think that's probably the the real story. You know yeah. what I mean? Now that said though, I know that you have done some of it and James has talked to you a lot about it. So, you know, if one were to want to steal on, which was one of the things that I did want to do a little bit. Um, what's your, like, what are the best practices when trying to do that? Or at least, you know, what's the things that have worked for you or that you think are important when doing that kind of thing? Cause that was, that was one of the deals that I was, hadn't spent any time doing in the past. I was particularly interested in seeing like, okay, could this kind of thing work out here? So James was almost exclusively still hunting, using a firearm, whether it was a muzzleloader or, or during the rifle season. And number one, you got to get the wind in your favor. So you pick where you're going to go based upon the wind direction. Number two, you're moving, you're moving slow through, you're moving very slow through areas where you feel like there could be deer. So maybe you, you know, you get out of your truck and you walk 200 yards regular speed, you know, (laughs) and you get back there and you start seeing a little bit of sign, you slow down. James has said many times to me that, uh, because the biggest question you have when you're doing this is, well, these deer can hear me walking in dry leaves. Why am I not spooking every animal around here? And, uh, and he just said, you know, deer walk and make noise, but what deer do is they take a series of steps and then they stop. They take a series of steps and then they stop. And he said, you can about walk right up to a deer if you do that. And it makes sense. I mean, we've all watched deer and deer's out there feeding and it hears something. What does it do? It picks up its head and it watches. And after some time, it puts its head back down. And, you know, you're, obviously you're not trying to get right up on the deer. You're just trying to get within sight of the deer. And he's had a lot of success doing that. And I can't say that I have. I, I've not, I've just not spent a ton of time still hunting like that 90 percent of the time i'm i'm stand hunting the mountains or hunting on the ground just yeah yeah and uh but then number what i've asked him several times is how do you know when to walk fast when to walk slow how much time to spend and he just kind of laughs and he says you know you just go with your gut you know and he said i might i might spend a day inside of a quarter mile stretch but always moving just a little bit, you know. Um, but he also might might walk much further than that. And there are times when when he's moving fast, times when he's moving slow. You know, using rises. Probably the final thing that I hear him talk about is using these rises and changes in topography to just creep over. Just you know, if you get a little flat and you kind of come up to that flat, you know, just creep your eyes over and just go real slow while your body is being shielded by the terrain. Just kind of probably standard, standard type stuff that Western spot and stock guys would understand. Yeah. So, so we did a little bit of both of those things. I'll, I'll uh, foreshadow here a little bit and, and say that we did some of the stand hunting up in a saddle, up in a tree. And then we also tried some of this creeping along still hunting stuff. And before we lose Tyler, he's on a plane and about to leave. I do want to get, Tyler, your quick perspective on what you thought about the two different styles of hunting. Without giving away what actually happened, 
Um, what did you think about getting up into a saddle for the first time and hunting in a tree? That was something we had to teach you like that week. What did you think about that versus when we were doing the creep along, still hunting? What was your experience of those two things? Um, well, yeah, it was, it was fun to get up in the tree and learn that process. But, um, you know, as my, I've done a lot more filming on hunts in, you know, the West where you're hiking around. And, and so I, after, you know, I have a little bit of ADD. So after a few hours in the tree and we weren't really seeing much, I was like twiddling my thumbs a little bit, but, um, the spot and stock was fun. Um, you know, definitely the, like you were talking about, you know, like, like James said, moving like a deer, um, take a few steps, stop, take a few steps, stop. We had that program going where I was what, 20 yards behind you, Mark. And then mm-hmm. I was just, I was just trying to film you from afar and late and just kind of walk when you walk and do the, uh, you know, just be the deer. And just, I kind of enjoyed that. It was a nice, you know, walk in a beautiful part of the country, even though we weren't really seeing much of the time, but, um, both were, you know, had their, I mean, we weren't seeing much deer in either, either, uh, scenario. Um, but, um, you know, there was, when you're stuck up in the tree, you, uh, I feel like you're like, Hey, maybe there's something over there. I don't know. Maybe I have that like scatterbrain mentality where I'm like, you know, let's, we should go check something else out. But once you're in the tree, you're kind of, you're there, right. As you guys know better than anybody. But, um, so yeah, we, uh, I, I kind of say I would I prefer the spot and stock just as a cameraman because you're moving around a little bit more. But um, but it was uh, they were not you know both not really say we weren't seeing deer. So either way we were doing it, we were uh, not seeing deer. So we could walk around and look for deer or stand in a tree on a nice saddle and <laughs> either way same results. So was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that was kind of a nice thing about it was that it was actually. Um, you know, we had those options. So in some hunts where you're just stuck doing one thing, you're, you're just stuck with it and that's the way to do it. And you have a certain level of, I don't know if it's stress, but just, um, discontent knowing that, well, there's no other change you can make in this case, at least, you know, I was able to say, well, let's change it up. And then you get this new boost of enthusiasm and a little bit more excitement and optimism again. And, you know, and that's, that's actually what we did because we hunted that first night in the saddle. Uh, I was able to sneak in down this ridge, got to one of these saddles. It had been a spot where we were, when we were scouting that first morning, we found one little tiny little rub. That was the only sign we found. Um, so I thought, well, there's this little rub. There were a bunch of acorns in the ridge back behind us. And then now here's this saddle. So let's, let's watch it. So you and me and Joe all climbed up into trees, sat up there that night. And at you know, the last half hour of daylight or so, we did have one doe move across the saddle way off in the distance. And, uh, you know, I thought that was, that was encouraging to at least see a deer. Um, but the next morning we sat the same spot and saw nothing. And so this is where having these other options was pretty appealing because after seeing one deer over the course of a lot of hours sitting in that tree, you know, it was pretty easy for me to say, all right, well, we've got another card we can pull here. Let's get on the ground Let's still hunt, let's scout, and let's try to find something, you know, that's that's a little bit more um oh, that's a little bit more promising. So we had that option, which which definitely helped helped a lot. That's a good point, um, about having those I didn't really think about it like that, but like getting that new enthusiasm from having a couple options. I mean, I, in, in the moment I didn't really think about that, but that is 
is a good point. But it also can make the itch this switch mode a little bit too. You know, you're like, okay, True. if this isn't working, you know, you can get a little bit that way. But we saw a fox that morning. We yeah. checked oh, yeah. it out for like a half an hour. That was I nice. forgot about that. That was cool to see that. That was uh, that was a cool encounter. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't is because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. So, so yeah, like you know, like me and Tyler were saying, it's it's nice to have these options and these things to work with. Um, and after that, that first morning on the second day. I decided to get out of the tree and kind of poke around a little bit more. Um, you know, one thing, Clay, that we haven't talked about but but did actually feature into our scouting was looking for acorns. Um, mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit on how important acorns are in this part of the country, in this specific scenario? Because, you know, I remember thinking two things. There were two things that really – well, three things that stood out to me. If there was like the big three that was in my mind the entire time I was hunting on my own – after spending time with you and James, it was one, tr- trust your terrain feature, that being the saddle. Number two was remember sign here is different. So don't get, you know, 
too concerned by the lack of it. And number three was acorns. Why is that so important? What are you looking for when it comes to that? I remember when we were walking around, you spent a lot of time looking at the ground and looking at acorns and analyzing the acorns you found. Um, what was your take on that? So you're always looking for trends with acorns. I mean, that if, any anybody around here, if you were just to walk up to a deer hunter in the store, it, there's a high probability you would say, you got any acorns over there? Or, you know, acorns falling yet? Because that is just a key food source for when we're hunting. And I, I, talking with uh, talking with some of these biologists that know this part of the country really well, it's interesting because acorns in the broad scheme of a whitetail's diet are not as critical as we feel like they would be. But the time we're hunting them, it is. You know, it's their it's their primary food source or what their their preferred food source. And so during October, November, that's what we're looking for is acorns. And man, acorn mast, predicting acorn mast, even with our best science, is very, very difficult. And so I love hearing guys talk about acorns because all, all through the summer, you know, it'd be like, man, we had a frost in April and, you know, my rooster crowed three times that morning and i, I think the <laughs> acorns are going to make up high you know yeah <laughs> and we have all this anecdotal evidence for why the acorns are going to make in certain mm-hmm. places and that's important because what happens in these mountains is that well actually i believe i've i've heard that two out of five years you will have a very good crop of acorns in this part of the world so, in a good crop of acorns isn't always good because a good crop of acorns might mean that there's acorns in all portions of the elevation changes in the mountains. You know, there's acorns up high, there's acorns in the middle, there's acorns down low. What you're, the best case scenario is that there's acorns in, in pockets. There's, there's sections of the mountain that have a lot of acorns and other sections that don't. And so... That's what I was looking for. But then there's these other obscure years, which I would call this year kind of obscure, is that it's really hard to predict where they were going to be. There were, there were there were acorns up high where we were hunting, but not a lot, not really enough to just draw the deer in and just be like, this is where the deer are going to be because there's acorns. Um, there were some acorns down low. There were some acorns up high. It was hard to predict. So really what we're hoping is on any given year that you could say with certainty, man, the acorns made up high. And so that's where all the game is going to be. So yeah, that's kind of a descriptor of what we're, the way we're thinking and talking down yeah. here, you know? Now I remember you grabbing acorns. Like you, you spent a good amount of time when we did find acorns, looking at them, grabbing them, scratching them with your knife, um, examining the husks, all that kind of stuff, the, the nut, uh, and you were talking about, well, I think this means that they're fresh or they're not fresh. Or you think this means a deer was eating them versus a squirrel or something. There's probably a lot of folks that have never taken the time to examine an acorn and really read what the story is there. Can you can you tell me what you were looking for and, and what you know what details helped you determine what actually was happening or how recently it happened? Yeah, so I was looking for fresh acorns that fell this year. And I think what can happen is... Well, first of all, there's there's two two types of 
oak trees that we're dealing with, we're dealing with red oaks and white oaks. White oaks fall and they sprout basically immediately. And so they'll send out a root shoot down and they'll, and then in the spring, they'll send the shoot up. But what that means is that a white oak acorn begins to break down really quickly as soon as it hits the ground. That's important. Number two, the red oaks, the red oaks lay on the ground through the whole winter and don't start to sprout until the spring. And so what that means is that there's a there's a shorter window of time that a white oak acorn is laying on the ground. And a white oak acorn will not last through the winter. It will rot or or you know, when it when it sprouts, it essentially becomes not as edible to an animal. Okay. A red oak acorn falls on the ground and it'll lay there and in March it'll look and and the meat will be just as good as it was when it fell in October. And so what can happen, Mark, is when you have a bumper crop of red oak acorns, they will persist. They just they just last longer on the ground. And you might be looking at a red oak acorn from two years ago that the hole still looks good, but it's actually rotten on the inside just because it it, it, it didn't sprout. For whatever reason, the acorn didn't turn into a tree and it wasn't eaten. And you'll be walking through the woods and see a whole acorn laying on the ground and it is of no value to wildlife. So, I, you know, you pick up an acorn and you try to determine if it's from – if it's this year and it's good food for wildlife or it's last year's hull that's empty. And so th- the way you can tell is just the weight of it. You know, an uh, old acorn is going to feel hollow and then you crack it open and, you know, it's just mush on the inside. And and uh, you crack open a good acorn and you have this white acorn nutty meat inside of it. And I think a lot of guys, if they're not really paying attention, might go into an area and think, man, I saw a lot of acorns. Well, they saw last year's acorns, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's, that's the long version of what I was doing. <laughs> and then you're also trying to look in the, in the trees as well, especially right. the time of year we were there, we were there in mid October. So there were still acorns in the trees and an acorn in the tree is actually as valuable as an acorn on the ground, because that means that tomorrow that stand is going to be as good as it is today or maybe better. Because sometimes, and, and and there's so many variables in acorn production, different trees produce different amounts. So you have two white oaks that look the exact same that are 20 yards apart. Genetically, one of those might be better than the other and just produce more acorns. Or, you know, there's some unfavorable advantage to that one being there and that one being there. And there's a lot of, oh, the, the I did a podcast with, um, with, uh, Craig, um, Harper, biologist, Craig, Craig Harper. Harper. Yep. Yeah. Craig Harper, university of Tennessee. We did a whole nerd out session on acorns and oak trees. And it's just fascinating the production, how they produce and whatnot. But, uh, you know, so, so we're walking through the woods and, you know, if you've got binoculars, you can look up in some of these trees, if you can get sight of the canopy, but you know, you're looking up, hoping to see a bunch of acorns in a tree, you know, um, so that's yeah, that's the acorn story. You you said uh, that one acorn in the tree is as valuable as an acorn on the ground. I feel like there's some kind of like saying there. You know how they say like a bird in the hand mm-hmm. is better than two in the bush yeah. or whatever. 
Well, there's there's got to be some way we can relate to an acorn in the tree is as valuable as an acorn on the ground. There's something there about life we could figure out someday. <laughs> but, yep, yep, um, yep, that's right. But yeah, so we were looking for acorns. Found some, but not a lot. Uh, acorns, sorry. Um, there you go. <laughs> and uh, we did the saddle the first evening, saw the one doe, hunted there again in the morning, saw nothing. And so I thought to myself, well, I only have two two days or two and a half days left and i was i was worried about sitting any one place for a whole lot of time given how little i had to work with um so i thought all right well let's let's try to poke around a little bit more here explore and and try the still hunting thing and so that's what i did that afternoon meanwhile you had left and you were hunting a totally different area um was there anything of note that you saw or that you did when you were hunting on your own um, that might be, you know, were there any things that you were doing that were different than what I was doing that might be useful to understand about different ways of hunting this terrain? You know, Mark, what I primarily did the whole time you were hunting was I was, I was scouting for the most part. I, I did very little sitting I think I hunted one afternoon where I stayed in the same spot for, you know, four hours and didn't move the entire rest of the time. I was, uh, I was on my mule and I was just covering a bunch of ground, just trying to find, I, I went into some new areas. Um, so I was, and, and the reason I wasn't hunting with you is I didn't want to get in the way or use up some potential spots that you would use. So, you know, I was at camp with you at least one night there, but I had gone off and, uh, I didn't really find anything encouraging during the three days that I was stomping around. And honestly, I don't even think I saw, I do not believe that I even saw a deer. And I mean, I went miles and miles on that mule. And if you're on the back of a mule, if you see a deer, you're just going to spook it most of the time. But if you see deer, that's a data point, a very good data point of, okay, there was a deer there at 9.15 this morning. So why was he there? And, you know, will he be there tomorrow? Or would there be more deer through here today? Mm-hmm. You know, so just scouting. Speaking of that, speaking of you scouting on your mule, I remember I was worried. One of the things I was worried about out there was how do these deer react to human presence? Because, you know, there's some places where deer are super cagey about, you know, walking around there. And if, if you walk through an area once that might, you know, shut them down. There's other places where they're so used to people being around that it's not as big of a deal. Um, I remember thinking, man, we're hiking, you know, to get to that first saddle was a mile and a half to get to that first saddle I hunted. So I'm thinking, man, I just hiked a mile and a half across this ridge. Am I just laying down a ground trail that will eliminate all this area behind me the whole time? And then later after that two days of hunting or the two sits of hunting and seeing nothing, and then I decided, okay, I want to do some still hunting and explore more. I want to scout more to figure this out. In the back of my mind, I was also constantly asking myself, well, how far can you push it without spooking stuff too much? I was always trying to, I just didn't have the context or history to know like how sensitive are deer in a big woods area like this on public land to, to me being here or me having been there yesterday. What's your take on that? What's your experience been? Are they forgiving? Or, you know, once you walk through an area or hunt an area once or twice, it's it's going to be shot. You know, I would say these deer are probably somewhere in the middle of that pendulum, you know. They're certainly not forgiving. But at the same time, I think 
this is not true wilderness in this in the very by definition it's not and so these deer experience humans coming through there and you know you're always trying to minimize the amount of scent that you're leaving and i've i've had a lot of different responses from deer with ground scent you know i mean i've had and i know you have too mark i mean Mm -hmm. sometimes you walk into a stand and you know an hour later a deer just walks right over your ground scent and doesn't even show any sign of nervousness and then other times you walk in and you know you've done whatever you're going to do for scent control whether it's you know a lot of times i just stomp my feet into the dirt and try to get dirt up on my boots sometimes i I like using cover scents to cover ground scent whether that's doe estrus or something not an attractant well not estrus doe i think you can use estrus doe but a doe, doe urine, synthetic doe urine, just something that's not going to spook them. Or if you're hunting in areas with livestock, walking through, you know, it, whatever you got there, cattle, cattle, uh, cattle droppings, whatever, you know, get that on your scent, on your boots, and cover that ground scent because you are leaving ground scent wherever you're going. But boy, it's just unpredictable. But I wasn't too worried about us walking through those saddles and and deer and if you did it every day for a week yeah i I was more concerned about just our scent especially with cameramen and whatnot just blowing off down the side of the mountain and settling down into where those deer were bedding and them going like hey there's like five guys up on top of that mountain (laughs) yeah so so this this is the perfect place then to dive into the thorny controversial topic of scent control clay Uh Um, (laughs) i feel like i've been targeted yeah well we've talked about in the past a little bit but i feel like you know since we spent some time together in arkansas and then uh you know we're doing our whole one week in november show where uh you dove into this topic a little bit uh accusing (laughs) accusing me of being like a bag of poo and thinking that yeah, the bag scent free, but the poo inside the bag isn't. I think you made some kind of analogy like that. Um, so I may have. I wasn't directly targeting <laughs> you, though, Mark. So here's here's what I want to get your perspective on. You and me were talking about this a little bit with your dad too, and um, when we we actually stayed at your parents' house one night in between trips, and uh, you you told me that your position on scent control has actually evolved a little bit and that you understand my perspective maybe a little more than you did even months ago or a year ago or something. Can you can you give me a the what your stance on scent control has been over the last, you know, 5 to 10 years or whatever? And then B, what is your slightly evolved perspective as of right now? If that's still true, maybe it's not true. Yeah. Now, basically my dad grew up inside of the he came of of fruition in his hunting world right at the time that commercial scent control products began to come out in the early to mid 90s so he used them extensively so i grew up with a i mean you you mark he could go up to michigan with you right now and hunt and you and him would i really feel like be on like the exact same page with every <laughs> just the very detail oriented scent control you know not dressing not using your hunting clothes in the truck not you know pulling your rubber boots out of a 
scent contained box with baking soda. I mean, like he, he did it to the fullest extent. So I grew up hunting that way for years, years and years and years. And when I went to college and kind of left the Gary Newcomb deer camp, it was, it was more an issue of just practicality. Like I had limited amount of time to hunt, limited money to buy scent control products. Mm-hmm. And I started hunting different though than he did because of terrain. I started hunting uh, private land where we were hunting the same stands over and over based on terrain features in these land. And I pretty much just was like, the wind's blowing out of the south. If I'm sitting in that tree, it doesn't matter what I smell like. And so I started not using scent control practices. And and I really poke fun. And if your people are listening to this and they've heard me, I love to poke fun at people because I think it's fun. <laughs> I think it's fun to argue about this stuff because it is so insignificant in the sense of this is really, if this is our biggest problem in life, if your biggest problem is deciding whether you should use scent control or not, you've got a fantastic life, you know? (laughs) So that's why this is a fun topic, but it's highly divisive. (laughs) So, uh, but my comments are not lightly spewed out there just from, you know, two seasons of anecdotal evidence. Basically I started not using scent control and just hunting the wind and I, I killed deer. You know, I mean, you just, it just didn't matter if the wind is predictable, you know, where the deer are going to be, you know, 70% of the time, it doesn't matter what you smell like. That's just the bottom line. So that's the way I hunted real hard for lots of years. And then I was like, I recognized the amount of energy, effort, time, money that people were putting into scent control. And I was kind of like, Hey, you don't have to do that. Just uh, use the use the wind. Okay, that so that that's section one. Section two is this idea which you have, and and I agree with this. There there are things you can do. There's science behind some scent control products that probably reduce your human odor. That do reduce your human odor, hundred percent. That's science. What Clay Newcomb says is that in his experience. I have not found that amount that it does reduce your scent to be of functional value in the field. And that's kind of where I stand. That being said, um, I mean, I, I just think, because I'll tell you, two years ago, I started kind of getting back into hunting a specific deer is what it was. I had a big deer that was on some really small properties. And so I thought, man, I'm going to dial the scent control back up. Let's just try it. Let's just go all in. So two years ago, I started washing my clothes, all the, all the clothes and scent free bags, baking soda in the, in the bags, pine and cedar chips in there, using the spray, using ozone products. And (laughs) now this might be anecdotal. The first time that I put all my energy back into scent control, I went out and had deer smell me at daylight. <laughs> and I'm not kidding, Mark. And I, I almost took it as a sign, just like you're wasting your time. Uh, really, just had deer just blow at me that just hardly got downwind. I and I was just like, I think it's because you go in the woods with a gallon of tuna fish with you every day. 
Nah, okay. <laughs> I knew this was going to be used against me. No, now see, at the at, at the I climax know, of sick control, I I wouldn't have done that. You know, I wouldn't have done it. Um, no. So can 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 you reduce human odor with these products? Yes, I do. I believe you can. Um, do the ozone products work? I I a hundred percent believe the science of ozone. I mean, it it works. What I have yet to find is to work real consistently in the field. Um, I am swayed when people tell me that it works. Like I had, uh, I've had two guys in the last week and they didn't know kind of my banter about this. And they were like, yeah, man, I started using Ozonics when I was in a, in a, in a deer blind and I stopped getting smelled. And I'm like, okay, I, I, I it's hard to argue with that. I also, there's a ton of guys that I know that have had the same thing, the same scenario, and it not work. I guess my my philosophy is that there's only so much energy, effort, time, and money that we can put into hunting. And I'm always looking for limiting factors inside of hunting. What is the real, the real problem? What is the real thing that keeps you from being successful? And I have found for me – that it is not that scent control products are not in the sphere of things that make my success rate go way up. That that's all. Yep. Um, that and 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 then I guess the other core component of what I'm saying is that yes, scent control products can reduce your scent, but I do not think that is significant in the field because if clay nucum is at a hundred percent odor with no scent control. Wind is blowing 40 yards away. A deer, a doe walks through my scent, blows, smells me like crazy. Scenario two, Clay Newcomb using full throttle scent control, using ozone products. Deer walks 40 yards down from his scent into his, into his wind. I find that deer still spooks, you know? I mean, now if I, it just, it just still spooks. Now, was there less odor? Yeah. Did the deer... How did that deer interpret that? I don't know, but I've not seen that deer just go. Well, he's probably not there. He's probably he was probably here two hours ago, and then just walk through it. So, anyway, no. So, Mark, aside from me, like I'm not trying to incite argument. Like, what what do you think about that? Do you think <laughs> what what would you say? Yeah. So, so first, I will acknowledge that you're you're on to like something that makes a lot of sense and that I agree with in, in a lot of ways, which is 70% of the time when the wind's predictable, you don't need to worry about scent at all. And it's, it's not a big deal. And you know, it depends on how much energy you want to put into it. And if the return on that energy is not worth it, especially if 70% of the time, you know, the wind's just the way you want it and you can play the wind and deer will never be downwind of you, then you're great and you're gravy and you're golden and it's fine. And I also understand that there's certain situations where you simply can't pull off a, a strong scent control regimen because of the limiting factors of the hunt, like the hunt that we did in Arkansas that we're talking about. There's no way I could have really practiced scent control because we're camping up there for a week. You know, you're sleeping in the same stuff in the tent. You're having like, even if we wanted to, it would be nearly impossible. And if we did want to try to practice scent control on that hunt, it'd be miserable. Um, you know, can't have a fire, can't, you know, have to have all sorts of different clothes and try to bring extra storage to keep stuff clean and mm -hmm. try to bring all this extra scent control stuff. It's just not realistic. 
in a situation like that. So in that scenario, I get it. Like, it's just not going to work. Um, but, and, and to the point you made in the one week in November episode, you're like, Hey, you can do everything you want to the bag, but if there's a bunch of crap in the bag, the deer is still going to smell you. Right. And you were saying the bag is like all your clothing and trying to keep that scent free. doesn't change the fact that there's a stinky human in that bag. All of that is true. All that is true and accurate. And all of that, I think makes it really hard for scent. It makes it really, really hard, nearly impossible to keep deer from smelling you. That said, yes, 70% of the time there's consistent wins or 70% of the time, you know, where deer are going to be. And you know, you can just make sure your wind is safe. What I'm worried about is that other 30% of the time. And you mentioned how, right for you, your limiting factor isn't the wind. There's all these other bigger problems you need to deal with to kill a deer. Well, what if I've already checked the boxes and all those other things? And what if I'm hunting in a place where, man, it's that 30%. You just don't know where the deer are going to be because there's so many deer here and it's unpredictable how they move or there's shifting winds um, or guess what? These are wild animals. And and yeah, 70% of the time that buck's going to go out in front of me through the pinch point. But what about that one time on November 7th when he does something crazy and he comes behind me in the place I've never seen a buck go before. What do you do in that situation when you are only counting on the wind being in your favor and you didn't do anything else? I'm worried about these little things, those little moments where. Can, can I stop you right there? Because yeah. I've got a question. Yeah. Th- that That's a fantastic example. But have you seen deer be dead downwind of you within 25, 30 yards that you honestly knew that they got your wind, but they went ahead and walked through it. And let me, let me put a caveat on that too. I think their wind is so un scent and wind are so unobservable by human senses. We can't smell at that level. Number one. Yep. (laughs) Number two, you can't see it with your eyes. And number three, like, because I could tell you times when I've seen deer walk dead down men, wind of me and not smell me. And it was because of thermals or it was because of something I couldn't see. Yep. It wasn't that they, that I fooled them because I wasn't using scent control. Do you have some real examples of when a deer should have smelled you and didn't because of your scent control practices? Yep. Great question. And, and so my answer to that is Absolutely. Hundreds, okay. hundreds of examples of that. But I will preface that by saying that I have, if I have hundreds of examples of, maybe maybe it's dozens, but dozens or hundreds of examples where deer definitely were downwind of me. And I could tell you for a fact that I observed them analyzing the wind. If, if that's the case, I can also tell you that there are thousands where they got downwind of me and still did wind me. So all this is to yeah. say that if you do every, if I were, if I do everything right. So first I'm talking about, there's a small percentage of situations where the wind, but we're playing the wind wouldn't help me. Okay. So we're talking about this 30% time. And then within that 30% time, if I do everything right, I'm still getting winded maybe on average seven times out of 10. So okay. now I'm talking about, there's a 30% of the time you're hunting where this applies. And then of that 30%, only 30% of those times do I actually pull it off. But that is worth it for me. So yeah, yeah, I, yeah. because if that one time 
if I'm just getting 5% better chance of killing a deer or killing the deer I'm after or whatever it is, that little bump is worth it to me because of the time and energy I invest into all this stuff. And I want that little extra bump. I would, if, if the one time that this actually works happens to be the time when it's a doe that walks through this downwind hole and she stops and she sense, you know, when the reason why I can tell you without a doubt, like not anecdotally, I can tell you, I could point to dozens and dozens of deer that did this. I can tell you with confidence that they were within the cone of my wind and they were considering what's up there is cause typically when you're using an ozone product, um, which helps this a lot, they'll stop, they'll hit your wind trail, their wind, that wind cone. And they'll be like, Oh, there is something up there. I've had this happen with ozone. I think also using like a cover, like a nose jammer or something helps with this, um, where they will hit your wind and they will stop and be like, Oh, this is something. And they'll stop, they'll lift their nose up, they'll kind of shift their head around, they'll lick their nose, they'll stare in your general direction. And then uh, I, I've had this happen so many times. And it's like the moment of truth. You see them hit the wind and then you sit there and you're thinking, well, what's it going to be today? Is it, Am I going to pull it off today or no? And you're sitting there on the edge of your seat and one of two things happens. Either they, they spook like normal and you're like, well, didn't work today. Or they analyze the situation they sit there they sniff they sniff they lick they stare and they say hmm there's something up there i don't know what it is uh, it's not enough to really spook but i i don't know i don't like the situation and they'll just turn and walk back the way they came or option number three is they'll do the thing they'll sit they'll think they'll lick and they'll say Meh, nothing keep going and i've had all three of those things happen but i've had enough deer that moved right on through they they analyzed it and deemed it safe. I've had that happen so many times, Clay, that I, even though, even though 70% of the time they don't do that, the 30% right. of the time that they do, that is like such a miracle and such a useful thing to me that I, I want to do all that work to get that 30% of the 30% time. Um, because if that's a doe with a buck behind her that I end up shooting, that was worth it. If that's a, yeah. if that's a, if that's a single doe that if she did spook and start blowing, 15 deer that were behind her would blow up or the 15 deer that are in front of me would blow up and the whole night screwed. I want to make sure that one deer doesn't spook. Cause that might be the key to everything. Um, yeah. So, so it's worth it to me, but I do know that it's, it's not going to work most of the time. Even when you do everything right, it's a pain in the butt and there's certain situations when it isn't even necessary. I, I all those things are true. Yeah. Hey, that's a, I, I can get behind that a hundred percent Mark. Um, for real, I, you know, we joke a lot about, or we, we get, we act, you know, I, I've, I've intentionally gone on and on about scent <laughs> control. I, I see what you're saying. And, and it, I mean, if you say you've seen that, then, and you, I a hundred percent believe you, then, uh, that's great. I think, I think, I think what gets under my, and, and for whatever reason, maybe I'm a jerk. And so I key in on stuff like this, but like <laughs> the guy that, you know, drove in his truck to his deer stand and gets out and like sprays down with scent shield and is is thinking that he's 100% eliminating his odor it's just it, the product just doesn't work that good for sure you know for and, sure but i know how you're doing it and i know how my dad does it and if you if you can go to that level of a le legitimate scent control 
then it could be worth it. But you got to do a whole bunch of stuff right. You know, you got to be you got to be highly detail oriented, which you're fantastic at. And uh, and so is my dad. And and I can be 100 percent, too, and have been. And so that's the thing. If if you're going to do it, it is one of those things. If you're going to do it, you got to do it a thousand percent. Yeah. And then, like you said, to think that you could do that level of scent control on like a hunt we were doing is just really not it would i I don't know anything's possible but it would have been ridiculous to even try you know yeah Yeah, like like the way i look at it is man if there's any chance i can do this a little bit better why wouldn't i it's like okay i know that like most people it's hard to guarantee that every single time you take a shot at an animal it's going to be a perfect shot right i I can't tell you that every time is going to work perfectly right some days a deer is going to do something crazy some days i might pull the trigger some days the wind might blow it right so if if i were to say well since i'm never going to get it perfect i might as well not practice and try you know that doesn't make sense to me so the same thing goes with wind like well i know i'm never going to get my scent control perfect i know i'm never going to get I'm never not going to get deer spooking me, so I'm not going to try then. Like that, yeah. that to me, I'm like, no. If I can, if I can get a little better, if me practicing a little bit more this year might improve my odds for the next shot by one percent more, I'm going to keep practicing more. If I can do a little bit more with scent control, maybe that helps me one percent more, two percent more this year. Yeah, I'm going to try to do that a little more. So that's that's the way I look at it. But I, I see all sides of it, um, and I definitely definitely agree. Like, man doing one or two of these things is basically just a facade. If it makes you feel better. Okay, great. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to help you a lot. Uh, though uh, I think, I think like you said, you got to go, you got to do it all to get some kind of benefit from it. Um, but anyone who tells you that they're 100% scent free and never, ever get winded by deer, uh, and never, you know, anyone who claims they're invincible in this regard, I, I have a really hard time believing that. Yeah. No, I, Hey, here's, here's one other, this is, I, this, here's one other thought, Mark, if we're talking about statistics and we're talking about a real world, not like on paper, but like real world functional stuff, that's going to, it's going to make us better. And, and we all have to evaluate like, what, what do we have the resources to invest in? Yes is and and I guess I guess I'm thinking about what you're saying is that we are talking about <laughs> what you just described is a minuscule amount of favorability in your favor if you're really looking at it because how many times uh, the 30% of the 30% how many times do you go hunting in a year and see a shooter buck like twice? Right. And so you're talking about, or, or tell me if I'm wrong. I'm talking about in a 30 year period of time with those statistics, maybe scent control would help you kill maybe one deer, maybe two deer. Is that, is that, is that right now? And then my, my combat, my, my the thing that I'm, th- and I'm not trying to combat. I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm trying to, I'm distilling down the way I think I I would, I would say if there's that much energy going into scent control for me to kill one more buck over the period of, let's just say 10 years, 
I could take that energy and put it into something else and maybe kill two more bucks. Yep, I get. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? <laughs> to, totally get what you're saying. And and the only uh, thing I would offer differently is that I'm not worried just about like that big mature buck winning me. I I really care about like every single doe that might win me because every doe that wins you could be the doe that blows your whole hunt. I, especially, well, I know that, and that's that's what I'm saying too. It's like how many times though is that going to play out like that? Because usually a doe spooks or a doe walks through your scent and she doesn't have a shooter buck behind her. You see what I'm saying? I do, but but what I'm more referencing is, and this is because I hunt a lot in high deer density areas, and like if a doe, even if there's not a buck on the doe, I have to, even okay. in early like season, ne- like late next season, week, yeah, like she'll next come week. Back well, gotcha. not even that. I'm talking like if a doe blows out on a hunt today on December, whatever, mid-December, I'm not worried about there being a buck behind her. But if a doe starts blowing, that's my night. Like if I have one doe start blowing, my entire night's done. If that happens every single one of my hunts, I'll never, ever see a mature buck. Um, yeah. And there's so many does where I hunt. There's always does going to be downwind to you. It's nearly impossible in a lot of the places I hunt to ever get a place that's bulletproof from a wind perspective. There's, I mean, I hunt yeah. places where you could see 40, 50 deer a night and you just know, like eventually something's going to get downwind to me in most of these places. And I, I, you know, there's just a couple places where you can hunt with a pond, but when you hunt flat country in ag yeah. land where there's not water, there's not big valleys, there's nothing to act as like a blocker for wind where deer won't ever go. You just know, well, it's going to happen. And so the question is, will I have a night? where a doe starts blowing and gets downwind of me and alerts the entire 200 acres to my presence? Or can I get away with that doe passing through, giving me the benefit of the doubt, and then all the other deer that come through upwind of me just keep doing their thing? That is almost an every single hunt occurrence for me, Clay. And I need those three days out of 10 to work out to ever see a mature buck. Yeah, man, that makes a ton of sense. And that what you just said, too, about uh, about flat ground like almost every place i hunt over here has a significant topographic you know elevation change and if you're on the edge of something your scent i mean there's just first of all there's a high probability deer aren't going to come from that way you can almost know that and that your your scent's going to be blowing off the side of a mountain kind of inconsequentially you know so now and that's a great point is that apples to apples we're not comparing apples to apples when we're talking about our whitetail hunting really you know what i mean but no hey everything you said is 100 percent reasonable mark we have done it we have come (laughs) to terms here no longer will there be this hostility between us i am saying great job mark Kenyon. i believe you and and i'm right back at you clay i can see your perspective on it and there's it's it's warranted and i can totally understand your argument so the the nasty tension, the oozing discomfort <laughs> that we've experienced when we're around each other can now be gone. <laughs> we can just put it to bed. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So, so, okay. Moving on from scent control. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got that taken care of. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, 
take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors, and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. Now, this, this is a good innovation here, and it solves a real problem, okay? So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools, like a griddle on your grill. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. There's no use of coatings, okay? You can use metal tools to flip, press, and scrape without worry. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. Now, everything, the problem with griddles, everything rusts. No one talks about how bad everything rusts. Uh, the reason they don't because they couldn't fix it until now. Well, Weber's new rust-resistant technology, your Weber grill will last for years. When used, the carbon steel griddle hardens and bonds the surface, reducing the ability for moisture to collect and rust to form. With the new Weber Works Prep Cook and Store System, you can keep cooking and cleaning supplies handy, carry food and condiments from the kitchen to the griddle, and even convert the side table into a prep station. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. Day three, or hunt three, or whatever this was. It was the second day of the hunt, but it was the third hunt. So that, that, se- that second morning, I saw nothing. So I decided to still hunt that afternoon. And I'm curious what you think about what I did here, Clay. Because I decided to move on from that saddle after hunting it in the evening and the morning. And I wanted to slowly still hunt my way down this ridge, looking for any new sign, looking for anything that might clue me into there having been a little bit more activity here, and then push on past where you and I had ever been to before together. Because that, that morning before, we had gone past the first saddle, and we got, we got close to the second. There's another saddle on this ridge. We got to the edge of that and then turned around. In my head, I thought, all right. I'll still hunt my way through that. I'll get to the second saddle. I'll examine it again. And assuming there's nothing new, I'm going to keep moving. And I'm going to head into new untouched country and see what I find. Well, what happened is I get, I come up out of the first saddle. I get to the side of this ridge. And I remember seeing a bunch of acorns. And I was like, gosh, I don't remember there being so many acorns here. So I stopped for a second and was just kind of looking around and thinking. And then I look off to my left and I see a little knob come off of the main ridge that I hadn't noticed the previous morning. And there was this knob, kind of like a spur point that came off the main ridge. And I noticed it was just thick. For whatever reason, there was not a mature canopy over this little knob. And it was really thick, 
new growth, some of the thickest stuff that I had seen so far. And I thought to myself, man, if I were a buck, I would be betting off this little spur ridge that comes off. That's the thickest, nastiest stuff I've seen yet. And I thought, you know what? Let's just watch that. Like, let's just edge this way. I'd seen all these acorns here and this little spur ridge. I thought, I'm just going to kind of edge my way over there, take a look and see what's going on. So I started just, I, I left the main ridge and started dropping off to the side and just really slowly edged my way along. And, and as Tyler described, and Tyler had to leave now because of his flight, but um, Tyler would be about 20, 30 yards behind me. And then my second cameraman, who we bring these two cameramen to have different angles and different coverage, makes it very hard from a hunting perspective. But I had him stay back like 70, 80 yards, and he was getting this far, far distant view. But I just didn't want three of us right together trying to walk through the woods and making all this noise. Um, so I started just slipping real quietly around this knob because the the ridge was heading up to the top of a basically a high point on the ridge. And then there's a little spur that came off there. And so I moved my way through there. And then here's a rub. And then I see that thinking, all right, this is this is great. This is only the second rub I've seen yet. I keep moving a little further, another like 40 yards. And here's another rub. I was like, oh, man, this is good. And then I move another like 50 yards around this knob circling. And here's another one. So all of a sudden, I've found three rubs all around this spur point coming off the ridge. And I am looking at my map and I'm looking at this sign. And I'm thinking, okay, this is interesting. And this also happens to be just, just at the head of that second saddle. So I stood there and just glassed that little brushy knob for... I don't know, half an hour maybe watching it and just seeing like maybe could there be a buck bedded down there? Yes, no, I'm not sure. But I watched it and watched it. And now we're down to the last hour of daylight maybe. And I thought to myself, well, this is interesting over here, but I also know there's that saddle just around the corner. So I decided to move edge down just a little bit further so I could see into that saddle as well. And I thought, you know, I've got a gun. This was a muzzleloader hunt. Um, I could, if I can see down into this valley or this, sorry, this saddle, and then also be tight up next to where this little spur is, maybe that's like a best of both worlds. If there's bucks cruising the side hill of the ridge, I could take advantage of it. If there's a buck coming off this little point that I thought maybe something might bet on, given the rubs and everything, I could see that or be within range of that. And then I could also be within sight of the saddle and see if anything was crossing there. As I move over, I also remembered that when you and I took that first walk through this area, we had found a little scrape right in the top of the ridge in the same zone. So now all of a sudden I've got acorns, I have a little scrape, and I have three rubs all right next to the saddle. And as you had described, like one rub equals 10 in Michigan. Well, I've just found three plus a scrape. That sounds like an amazing concentration of sign now. Mm -hmm. um, so I was encouraged by that sat down next to a tree on the ground, kind of overlooking all this and figured, all right, I'm going to watch it and just see what happens. And sure enough, before dark, here comes four does, by far like the most deer we'd seen. And they come across that saddle, cross the saddle, go to the other side. They're out, out, out of range. Um, And this brings up a point that we haven't covered yet, but we should, which is what I was going to target on this hunt. Uh, I've been asking you leading into the hunt, you know, what do you think's realistic that I could see? Um, what's realistic when it comes to bucks? Should I, should I try to take a doe? Should I hold out for a buck? Should I hold out for an older buck like I usually do? 
you know, what's possible here. And you brought this up with James, or one of us brought this up with James too, and he had some really helpful insight. Um, can you just recount what that was and, and what your perspective was as far as, you know, I had three and a half days or whatever it was to hunt. What was your perspective and James's as far as, you know, how I should adjust my goals? You know, with three and a half days to hunt, my, my advice to you was shoot any legal buck you see or legal deer. And James had the same advice right off without hesitation shoot any legal buck you see, you know, and, um, and boy, anywhere you go in the country with three and a half days to hunt, you know, your, your, your odds, the are the odds are already against you for taking a mature buck. I mean, even in some great place, you know, yeah. so on this kind of hunt, we were looking for just a, legal buck and we hoped we hoped it would be a nice buck and that would kind of just be a game of odds you know yeah i mean we this is not a place we had cameras up we didn't we had no clue what kind of deer were in the area but um so yeah you were just looking for for a legal deer and you know i think you would have shot a doe if yeah. you would have thought that it was lone and it wasn't gonna you know wasn't being followed by a buck and um so, yeah, we were just, this was kind of a meat hunt, you know? Yep, definitely. And when I saw those four does, I I even tried to slip closer to them just on the off chance that maybe they'd come back through or maybe there'd be another deer behind them. And, and to your point, I, I had decided that, yeah, getting any deer on this hunt would be a heck of an accomplishment. So I was excited seeing four shooter does. Um, mm-hmm. Shooter does. Exactly. And, and, yeah, that was how that night ended, though. Uh, they never came back through. No other deer came through, but I had all of a sudden a lot of confidence in this little area and figured, okay, I'm going to be right back here. First thing in the morning, maybe adjust my location a little bit closer into the saddle, a little further into the saddle. So if something comes through there, like they did, I could get a shot and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, fast forward to that next morning. That's what I did. I, I slipped in there before dark or before daylight. I found a spot where I could, kind of hunker up next to a tree and hide my cameraman behind some downed logs. And at first light, yeah, pretty soon after first light, here comes some does through that same saddle, but they were further back up, almost, almost out of the saddle. They were kind of side hilling mm-hmm. it. Um, mm-hmm. and still out of range now and kind of passing through some of the thicker stuff. So they came through. And after I saw that, I thought to myself, well, maybe I need to be deeper into this saddle. Because, you know, now both of the groups of does that I had seen had been on that farther side of it. So after, right. I don't know, an hour after daylight now, maybe I'm like, OK, let's make an adjustment again one more time. And this is where hunting on the ground, I think, really appealed to me on this trip and on some subsequent hunts where I was using a firearm. You know, so often I like to be up high and in a tree. But when you've got a gun, you know, a lot of you're you're not as um vulnerable to getting spotted by deer as you are with a bow when you need that yeah. deer to be 20 30 40 yards away and you you know you have to have them that close to get a shot now that's hard but if i can kill them at 100 yards or kill them at 70 yards and see them at that distance you know i'm not worried about them seeing me next to a tree on the ground and so i had thought to myself at this point man the benefit of being able to easily adjust my location you know, just on like, hey, I need to move and just walk 30 yards. That benefit outweighed the added 
stealth I would get from being in a tree just because of how difficult it would be mm-hmm. to move locations to, you know, put sticks in the stand up and pull it down, move to another tree, put sticks and get up in there in the saddle again, especially with cameramen too. So right. in this case, I mean, I'm very glad that I was on the ground because I just said, okay, well, I saw what they did here. I'm just going to get up. I'm going to move 40 yards now a little bit further. And I moved to a spot where I could see down into that saddle a little bit more and shoot to the other side of it. If deer did cross through there, sat down the ground again. And now this is what I can't remember what happened first. Um, we had a spike come in directly behind me and it, it walked right up on one of my cameramen and spooked. What I can't remember is if that happened before or after the next thing I'm going to tell you about. I don't remember what happened first, um, but that's not too terribly important. We did see a spike. I did not get a shot of the spike, but what happened either just before or just after this was that while I'm sitting on the ground with my back, back against a tree, looking down at the saddle, I hear a twig snap to my right, kind of right back from where I'd come from. Just uh, imagine there's this ridge and then the ridge dips down right into the saddle in front of me. But that ridge also, there's a high point on a ridge and then it falls off on either side, right? I was just a little bit off to the left side of the ridge. So I'm just slightly below the highest point. I hear a twig snap just to the right, just off of the high point to the right side of the ridge. And I spin my head when I hear this snap. And as I look to my right, I just see the tip top of tines just beneath the rise of the hill walking parallel to me down into the saddle. Right away, I whispered to Tyler, Tyler, buck right next to us. I mean, he was, it was 40 yards away maybe as it was slipping down the other side of the ridge. And I'd get up on my knees, pull the gun up, put the gun up against this tree I was, that was sitting in front of me. And yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what happened, right? Because I'm pretty sure I was sitting up against mm-hmm. a tree and then there was another tree in front of me. So I got up on my knees and put my gun against that tree and spun. And as that deer came out all, right from behind that rise, he stepped into an opening and, and it ha- this all happened in like five seconds, four seconds. He was there. He was in front of me. Boom. Shot him. Hardly had time to even look at what this buck was, but I knew it was a buck and it was, you know, a legal buck and it took a crack, mm-hmm. shot him. He ran off like a hundred yards and then immediately went down, like bedded down though. And so I knew it wasn't, well, I didn't know, but it appeared that it wasn't an instantly fatal shot. He, he didn't crash down. He ran off and stopped and went down, mm-hmm. bedded down. And so I repositioned myself for a shot, for a follow-up shot. I could see like tines in the grass, but couldn't see him. And to make a long story short, he ended up getting up, went back down, couldn't get a shot, got up, got back down, couldn't get a shot, and finally got up and stood still in one position long enough that I was able to get the follow-up shot and dropped him in his tracks right there. And uh, mm. and I had killed a buck on day yeah, man. three of the hunt, walked up on him. And he was like a really nice, I mean, not a big, big buck, but like a nice eight point buck. Um, it was incredible. It was awesome. Yeah, I was man. Thrilled. Well, I really feel like for a for a three and a half day hunt, you did really good, especially in that part of the world, you know, just to kill a nice racked buck, you know. Yeah. Um. So I I was thrilled. You you messaged me. It was it was 
later in the morning, like in like ten o'clock or something like that. Nine thirty ten, yeah. something like that. Nine thirty ten, yeah. And you said shot an eight point, <laughs> and uh, I was I was as the crow flies, really not that far from you. I mean, you know, ten miles, but it took me two and a half hours probably to get to you. Yeah. And uh, by the time I got back around, and yeah, man, I was thrilled for you. Yeah, it works, it you know. That's the thing about these, this kind of hunting is you can't be validated by seeing deer. I mean, we deer hunt because we love deer. Mm-hmm. It, oh, it is. It's ridiculous how fun it is to watch deer. Yes, you know. I mean, like you see, you see these videos of like cats, like looking at a window at a bird, and you know, you can just tell how pumped they are to be watching this bird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're like that with we're deer. Like that. We love to see just watch a deer that we're not even going to kill and that is part of the fun of hunting so if you were going to hunt for four hours you know to not see a single deer except the one that you shoot would not be as fun as if you'd seen 10 before you killed the one that you did kill yeah but but the result was the same you know and that's kind of what i thought would happen is that if you sit there long enough it's going to work out and uh, and the the plan worked. We stuck with the plan, you know, hunting these high saddles, and with just a little bit of sign, it, it just kind of worked like it was supposed to, you know. Yeah, and I'll tell you that was one of the biggest challenges, though, was trusting in that plan. You know, I'm yeah. I'm so used to, you know, especially when you're hunting in high deer density areas, and you know what I do most of the time is try to target a mature buck. You know, it's it's so focused on finding the best of the best sign and high concentrations of it and getting right into the middle of it and making sure you're on the freshest, hottest, biggest sign. And you need all these different points of validation to confirm that, yeah, you're actually in it. And if you're not actually in it, you're wasting your time. Well, that's the exact opposite in this kind of scenario where it's, man, you're not going to have any of that. And you simply need to trust that this thing is good enough. This terrain feature is good enough and wait and trust. Like there's nothing to tell you, oh yeah, I'm on the right track. Oh yeah, this is you know, here's a bunch of deer. Okay. Yep. Or here's a bunch of sign. Yep. You're on the right track. Nope. There's none of that. And so I remember, you know, talking about that to the camera, just about how kind of unnerving that is and how I, I just kept on trying to remind myself, like, trust the terrain, just trust the terrain, keep on trusting it. And, you know, eventually, you know, there's the possibility it could work out. And unfortunately it did. Um, but you know, very different than what I'm used to in, in so many places. And Mark, if we'd have had more time, like ideally you would do a hunt like that and have a week to hunt, you yeah. know? And if you'd have come in and had a full week to hunt, we probably would have spent more time scouting. We, we would have tried to find a little more sign or, you know, one of us would have hunted. If we'd have been just hunting together and we'd have found one spot that had a little bit of sign, it was a good historic saddle, it might have been like, hey, you hunt here tonight. I'm going to go over there and check that out and and still hunt a little bit, but scout. And, you know, about day three, just like all these hunts happen, you know, we might have found something that was way better than what you were sitting on. But, boy, I, I, I just calculated that, man, if you just sit there, if you just stay in this area and do this, especially for the short amount of time we had, then – it'll work, you know, and there, there's a couple of different responses to, to hunting and a guy just kind of has to figure out what he wants to do and what is successful. 
I I don't have a hard time hunkering down when times get hard and just sticking with something where like so for instance like I could go sit in the saddle for you know three or four hunts in a row and not see a deer and go into it on that fifth hunt thinking today is the day I feel better than I've ever felt you know <laughs> that it's going to mm-hmm. work out just because statistically you're like, deer's going to come through here, and I've been here four times, and he hasn't showed up. Today, there's got to be a deer come through here. And it, and it worked. At the same time, one of the best hunters I know down in western Arkansas, it's a good friend of mine named Scott Brown, he won't hunt a place more than once if he doesn't see a deer. And he's hunting the exact same type of terrain, Mark. <laughs> and Scott Scott will tell you, boy, if you go in some place and don't see a deer, then go somewhere else. But he also knows all that country really well he lives there he and that's his strategy his strategy is actually i'm going to kill a deer the first time i go in somewhere so i am going to maximize the number of first times that i go somewhere yeah you see what i'm saying yeah for and sure. a lot a lot of times and and i like that I, I like going to a totally new spot and setting up but i also like to kind of hunker down and just wait for one yeah, it, it it just takes like it does take some under some knowledge of that place or some confidence in that place to do that at least for me. Yes. You know, I, I'm fine sitting in place over and over again if I know like hey, I know that bucks use this area in this kind of way. I know that eventually he'll come through. It might not be today, it might not be tomorrow, but it will happen. Like I I love a place like that. The hard thing for me this year was just I'm just, you know, I've just got hunches or I've just got a suggestion or I've just got a man. This is supposed to work like this. So I hope so. Um, that was the thing that kept my mind swimming day after day in these different hunts and these different locations like this, where you're just like, man, this is how it's supposed to work. I just don't have the time and history here to tell you that I know for sure. Yeah. And so you're just kind of, you're hoping and wishing on a prayer and, and uh, fortunate in this case, you know, it, it panned out the way it's supposed to, and, and it was a really cool experience. And, and you came rolling in a few hours later on your mule. And uh, and I guess that's something worth talking about because, you know, as you alluded at the beginning, you know, going in like we did and camping out in there and bringing the mule, it's not all about efficiency. It's really a lot about chasing a certain experience. But there is something awfully efficient about having that mule. I was We were four miles away from the truck at this point. Um, that'd be a heck of a drag or a heck of a hike out with him on my back, but we were able to grab that deer and throw it on your mule and, uh, you know, make for a much easier exit strategy. What's, uh, can you talk to me about like the best way to pack a deer out, how you did that on the mule and, and your thoughts on that side of things? Yeah. So that, that was really cool. And that is the, probably the biggest, the biggest cherry on top of hunting with a mule is that you're not worried about killing one way back in there. My, when I years ago, I remember I was bear hunting back in the mountains and my dad would be like, well, what are you going to do when you kill one back there? And that was a legitimate question for us back then before I had stock is like, holy cow, that's going to be a major deal getting it out of there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's just not an issue if you've got, a, a mule that'll carry a deer and what was cool about this deal too is we carried the mule carried all our stuff out and the deer so yeah and in the same one trip so if we'd have been back there without that 
without the mule we'd had to make a couple of trips back in and out of there to get the whole deer out and everything and and the deer wasn't a huge body deer you know so it wasn't wasn't a big deal for the mule but what the strategy that i used or the technique that i used was you gut the deer and then you cut about a four or five inch slit in the ribs kind of in the middle the the middle section of the ribs and you it takes two guys and, and it can be kind of hard to do, but you basically put that slit over the saddle horn on your saddle. And it, once that saddle horn goes in the slit of that rib, you don't even have to tie the mu- the, the deer down. It looks like it's just draped across the saddle, but it pretty much won't come off. And, uh, so that's what we did. And, yeah. uh, it, uh, and then you can also still put your panniers on and pack all your camp. And so we came out of there and the mule had all our camp and the deer. And, um, you know, the, the other, the way that when I bear hunt and haul a bear out is we'll go ahead and quarter the bear and just put the quarters in there. You could do the same thing with the deer. You can quarter the deer and put the quarters, you know, in your, in your panniers and, um, I've also seen guys tie them up, like basically drape them over the saddle and then tie their feet and not do the slit, the slit tactic. But, uh, yeah, I enjoy that stuff. It's, it's pretty handy. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I was really glad, really glad we had Izzy for that one. Um, it was, it was just, it was helpful and then just cool again it was another one of those moments Uh, hiking in i had a moment like that and then hiking out again like looking back and seeing seeing my buck slung over the top of a mule i mean that's uh that's a sight you don't get every day and and so much of this this week was like that uh you know in, in the modern deer hunting experience for most of us you know so much of hunting now is you know you're, at least maybe it's maybe it's just me me and people i hang out with but it's it's kind of like you're a i don't know like a like a military person sneaking in like assaulting a target is sometimes yeah. how we talk about it. like you're on a mission you've got your property you get in there you get your fancy scent control stuff you get your you know your $1000 bow and your saddle and your ultralight sticks and you hike into this place or you ride an e-bike into this place or whatever. And you check your trail cameras or you look at your phone and you see what's on the cameras and you're doing all this stuff. And it's very intense. It's very technology heavy these days. And in, in certain ways, it's an oftentimes solo. Uh, it's often very, very end goal oriented. Like I'm trying to kill this one mature buck. And if any other deer comes through, I don't care. All I care about is that one deer. And so there's these very high stakes and, I sometimes catch myself like being surrounded by pressure and stress and technology and uh, you know, all these things. And I'm out there and I'm like, I'm not even having fun right now. Like I'm just pissed (laughs) off or I'm just stressed out or I'm just like overworked, whatever it might be. And I'll catch myself sometimes thinking, what are you doing? And I'm not saying I don't love a lot of these things a lot of the time, but there are days or moments where I'm like, Whoa, this is not what I want it to be all the time. And that's why a hunt like what we experienced together in Arkansas seemed like such a great reset where I wasn't worried about all these things. I wasn't stressed out about, 
a big buck. I wasn't worried about trail cameras. I wasn't bringing any technology or scent control stuff out there with me. I wasn't a solo tactical assault man. I was there with a group of people. We were having fun together. We were having a shared communal experience. We were out there in nature, camping, hoping to see some deer. But if not, well, you know what? That's hunting. And it was very much a throwback to how I imagine a lot of people experience these things. And and I've noticed, Clay, with you, that you seem to actively... um you actively are seeking out those types of counter culture, counter mainstream culture experiences. Maybe like you've, you've made a choice to get involved with mules. You've made a choice to go and do these kinds of, you know, hunts in the big woods that are a lot harder than what you could be doing in other parts of Arkansas. You've, you've done and you've explored different arenas within the hunting culture like this. You've, you've gone and you've tapped into things like, uh, you know, getting into coon hunting, bear hunting, all these different things that maybe are different than the mainstream. Um, is that yeah. is that purposeful? Is that mindful? Is that, did that just happen because of how you were raised, or have you have you thought to yourself at some point in your life, man? I think they had something right a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago. I want to get a taste of that. I want to be more like that. What, what does any of that make sense or resonate? You know, I, I think it's probably a combination of a, of a lot of different things. You know, talking about this kind of romantic hunt in a sense that we did out there with mules and hunting this way with really not a lot of technology. Uh, that's not the way I always hunt, you know. I mean, that that is there's probably some media bias towards that because <laughs> that's what people want to talk to me about. And that's right. what I enjoy talking about. But you know this, Mark, I mean, a whole lot of my whitetail hunting is not that dissimilar to yours. You know, I mean, like hunting a single buck, you know, driving a truck to where I'm going to hunt and getting out and getting in a tree saddle. And, you know, so a lot of my hunting is just pretty standard, but I I find that I'm pretty goal-oriented over periods of time. And I spent about 10 years in this part of Arkansas trying to kill a three-and-a-half-year-old plus age buck with a bow. That was my goal every year. I want to kill a three-and-a-half-year-old deer or above every year. And I, I, I mean, I, I really can't say how many years I did that, but after 10, 12 years, I was like, okay, I can do this. Like I could do this probably for the rest of my hunting career, you know, fairly successfully, you know, and, and I just kind of proved myself that I could do that. And so I kind of, I didn't forget that cause I still do that, but I moved on to something else. And really it probably was six, seven, eight, ten 10 years ago that I really started hunting national forest in the interior national forest, like what we did. So that's not something I necessarily just always targeted. You know, when I was a kid, we were trying to get away from that kind of hunting. You know, we, we were trying to go right. hunt the private land. We were wanting to go to the Midwest. We were wanting to do something different because mm -hmm. that was tough. And so when I became an adult and after I kind of did this kind of stuff, I went back to that and I don't know. I, I I don't know why I like that kind of stuff. I just um, 
I do like to continue to challenge myself. I mean, like with traditional archery would probably be a good example of that kind of stuff. You know, I, I've hunted with a compound since I was in the third grade and used to shoot. Uh, Gary Newcomb hauled me around to every bow tournament within four hours of where I, we live and shot a lot of uh, archery tournaments and stuff. And, you know, when I got in, became an adult, I was like, well, I'm done with that. Um, <laughs> and it just wasn't that interested in that. But it had built a skill set and shooting bows, and I if I, I started I kept bow hunting and I just felt like I was carrying a rifle, you know. And there were some strategic people in my life that were traditional archery hunting, and I just remember going and talking to those guys and going, "Holy cow! Now that dude is bow hunting," you know. And and for me, I was challenged by these traditional archers, and so I said, "You know what? I." I don't know if I can do it or not. Let's see. And so for about seven years, I really heavily focused on traditional archery, and that was my go-to weapon for everything. And, Mark, I missed a couple of real nice bucks. I killed some deer, killed one nice buck, killed a bunch of bears. That was my main target during that period was bears. And about two years ago, I woke up, and I was like, you know what? I've kind of done it for me, for my standards. You know, I was like, Yep, I can kill stuff with a traditional bow with consistency. I love it. It's awesome. And I said, but I think I'm ready to go back to the compound. So for the last two years, I've shot compound and love it. Just love it. I mean, when I go out with my compound bow right now, I feel really good about just killing a deer. And, um, you know, two years from now, that might wear off. And I might go, you know what? I'm going back to the trad bow. I just kind of like to keep things fresh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I 100% get that. You you talk about um you talk about in in a number of your pieces of work, you know, like your podcast Bear Grease, about some of the influences that you've had and and someone in particular who you would have liked to go back in time and shake their hand and look them in the face like someone like Daniel Boone or one of these other long hunters, mountain men, frontier types. Um, it's funny. <laughs> I'll, I'll step out of my question as an aside. I don't remember where, but somehow my son um, heard me talk about Daniel Boone or something. And then we were riding in the car together when I was listening to one of your podcasts about Daniel Boone. And so mm. he's like, oh, this is Daniel Boone. And he started listening. And he's three, mind you. Um, he then found the song from the Daniel Boone TV show. Like my mother-in-law or someone must have like heard him talking about Daniel Boone. So she's like, Hey, listen to this song. So she heard that Daniel Boone is a man. And (laughs) he is now for the last two months since I visited with you, he has been in full blown Daniel Boone obsession mode. Like we listen, we listen to that song every morning on repeat and the two of us will sit there saying he was a big man <laughs> and he pretends to be Daniel Boone and he, mm. I mean, he's, he's in it. He obsesses about wow. these different hunters. Like he's, he, you know, he likes to pretend to be Steve or you or Giannis or whoever, but right now <laughs> Daniel Boone is the top of the game for him. And wow. uh, I bring that up though to, to just, I'm curious how much these historical figures you know, you, you mentioned we kind of romanticize these kind of throwback hunts a little bit. How much do folks like that enter your mind when you go out and hunt in this kind of way or you go into a place yeah. like this? Um, 
I mean, there's there's some kind of appeal, even like like even though I don't hunt this way a lot, I still am like, wow, there's something very attractive about what that must have been like, and I, wanting to tap yeah. into it just a little bit. Yeah, that's a good question, Mark. And the answer is, I think about it all the time. I really do. I mean, I I really I think about Daniel Boone. I think about Frederick Gerstocker, who's a is a guy that hunted in the early 1800s here in Arkansas that I've read a lot about. And I think about these guys all the time. And I think what I'm kind of on the search for among probably all of us is personal identity. And we, we unconsciously draw a lot of personal identity from sources that we don't even recognize. And you know, the question I always bring up on Bear Grease and I ask people constantly is why is it important what some dude did 200 years ago, you know, for whatever my connection would be to him, whether it would be he lived in the same place I did or he was interested in something I'm interested in or, or maybe it's a family member uh, or maybe it's a geographic geographic connection or whatever. And that answer, the answer to that question is not entirely tangible but it is extremely clear that we draw an enormous amount of personal identity from a bunch of stuff that happened a long time ago and there's that that can be positive and negative big time mark i mean humans are just sponges for identity we're all trying to figure out who we are yeah. and what is the functional expression of who we are that's going to make us be successful and have a good family and be good deer hunters and be able to make money and 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 make whatever impact we feel like we need to make on planet earth and uh you just can't do that absent from history and i don't I, i'm really not a history i can't say that i'm like a history buff i don't just devour history books but i get into certain you know there's certain things that that i do get into like daniel boone that series like that was fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I learned a lot myself inside of all that, the research and talking to the, all these guys about Daniel Boone. And I think there, I think it makes your outdoor experience more robust. And that is something I'm very interested in is in all areas of life is to have a robust human experience in whatever you're doing, whether it's with your family or your career at, you know, the IT place you work at, is like to be beyond, to have a beyond the surface level understanding of what's going on, who you're working with, just life. And so if I can, if I can understand about the way these long hunters hunted and the history of North American hunting and how they market hunted animals out, but then there was the reintroduction of animals into kind of in the in, in some places, actual reintroduction. But if you know the broader picture of conservation, then it makes a ton of sense and adds a ton of value to that, you know, average eight point that you killed on the side of a mountain in Arkansas yeah. that otherwise might not have that much value. So I think knowledge just almost always brings a more robust experience to anything that you do. Yeah, you know? yeah, so true. So much of a hunting or any kind, but so much of a hunt or hunting experience is experienced between your ears too. Mm -hmm. And having that knowledge, that context 
even even being able to imagine all this greater greater eh, I'm struggling to articulate exactly what I mean here but but it, but it adds this whole other level this whole other, this sense of depth to to everything um and and I can't help but find myself romanticizing these things too and imagining these things and putting myself into different places and different times and thinking man what would have that been like uh, how much I would have loved to be there man so often like man I was born 200 years too late um so if I I got to ask you if if I could go back to any time and like plant myself in a spot and experience something I would have liked I've thought about this a lot so it's easy for me to answer now I would have liked to have been on the Lewis and Clark journey. That's where I want to go. I want mm-hmm. to have got to go across the Great Plains and see, be one of the first, you know, Euro Americans to experience what that was like, the vastness of the wildlife populations, and being able to go and see what the Rocky Mountains were actually like and going up into them. And, you know, all, all along that trip, you don't know. You don't know what you're going to come across. You're, you're surprised by everything. You've heard rumors of things. You've, gotten reports from scouts on different things, but the whole way it's, man, I don't know. And then seeing the, the amazing plenty of what the American West was actually like would have been amazing. That's, that's what I would like to, to see and do if I could go back in time. Uh, what would your spot be? Would you go back and be one of Boone's buddies crossing through the Cumberland <laughs> Gap or, or what would you choose? Okay. I'm going to give you a layered answer, Mark. Because that's what I like. I am I am thrilled to be alive in 2021. Like I'm confident that Daniel Boone or the Folsom Hunters. We're doing a podcast series on Bear Grease right now about the the Folsom site, which mm-hmm. is a 10,000 plus year old site where they killed 32 bison using this unique style of point, and it's just an unbelievable story. Fascinating stuff. And those. Those guys, if they, if they inside of their life could peer into the life that we live, it, it, they would be more fascinated with us than we are with them yeah. looking back. Yeah. You know, we, we live, we're trapped inside of time, which makes us think that our lives are normal and our lives are not normal at all. Uh, in this last podcast, I did a section because I was kind of trying to quantify that statement right there. And they say that they're, they estimate that there's been about 117 billion humans that have lived on planet earth ever, you know, homo sapiens, 117 billion. Right now there's 7.8 billion people on planet earth. Um, it's hard to analyze those numbers, but basically the vast, vast majority of humans that have ever lived have lived radically different lives than us mm-hmm. with not the amount of technology that we have. So I say that to say, I'm, I, I think we're we're pioneers in a major way. Like I think just like we look back at Boone and go, how did he do it? How did he travel that all that way and buckskins and how did he handle the cold? How did he can, handle the hunger? How did he handle the threat of uh, Indians? How did he? kill all those animals how did he do that you know they they'd be saying the same thing about us how did how did they manage the all the stress and how did they manage the this and that how to deal with trolls on instagram <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah yeah but i i i would i would love to go back into boone's time 
I would. I, I'd love to be Dan Boone's buddy. I just have a ton of respect for the guy. I just really, there's so much we know about Boone and these weird, you know, and Renella said it so well so many times on that series, but we know a ton about Boone, obscure, an incredible amount of stuff we know about Boone down to his personal emotions and opinions on really specific things, which is kind of unique. And I think I'd have liked old Dan Boone. And, uh, but, and this is probably because I'm deep into the research and kind of the heart of this podcast on Folsom, but I cannot get over trying to understand the human experience that a Pleistocene hunter would have had. Yeah. I mean, I, I just like to be in their camp. I mean, were they happy or were they just miserable because of the life that they lived? Yeah. Were there comedians in a group you know there's 10 people in your camp was there one guy that was like super funny you know, <laughs> cracking jokes about you know pleistocene dad jokes <laughs> um gotta be and the the answer is yes you know he was there there would have been they were just like us they just didn't have the the knowledge or the technology that we have but they had a whole other set of knowledge so so either pleistocene hunter or boone Boone, you know, being around when old Boone was around. But I guarantee you, if we were there for a week, we'd want to come back. Probably right. I mean. <laughs> Tough living. Yeah. Oh, just incredible. And and it's also incredible to think about uh, the the resilience of humanity to to become whatever we have to become to survive. So – we look at some of the stuff that Boone went through and just went like, how was it even possible? Because, you know, me and you go out and set four hours in a tree stand and get a little bit chilled. And we're like, man, I'm, I'm ready to go home, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and these guys, you know, Daniel Boone once spent two years on a hunting trip by himself without, you know, no rain gear, living off of wild game and whatever he foraged and just the toughness that that would have taken. And to think, holy cow, if me and you went and did that today, Mark, I mean, I, you know, what? how would we respond to that? But if we were there and didn't know any different, I guarantee you it would have not been that big a deal. So just interesting stuff to think about. Yeah, man. For sure. It, it definitely is. <laughs> and it's it was, it was really cool to have, you know, a short opportunity to immerse myself in something that at the, at the just very, very little surface level could give you a, a tiny little opportunity to, to experience what that might've been like just a little bit. I mean, going in there, this whole, this whole hunt for me was, um, was just a real treat getting that taste, getting a feel of that, getting to be out in the mountains, big woods, public land, camping out with a mule, hoping to, hoping to still hunt my way into a buck, hoping something will come through, hoping I'll be able to sling a deer over top of a, over top of a mule. I mean, that, that whole thing was just, was a really great adventure and uh, I, I can't thank you enough clay for showing me around for for taking time to share with me how you think about these things and, and and how you go about it and man it was just a great time so thank you yeah well man you're welcome but really i i thank you for coming down i mean you for you uh and and you're the whitetail guru for you to think enough of what we're doing down here to come down here was an honor to me. So I, I, I appreciate you coming, man. Cause you, you knew you were walking into something that wasn't an ideal. It's not the kind of place you travel to go hunt, you know? 
So yeah, had a great time and you know it, man, you can come back anytime you want to, but me and you are kind of trapped in this media world where we got to <laughs> produce content. So, and, and there's always pressure and it, it's dumb to talk about it, but there is a, you know, producing media does put a big time strain and an unusual difficulty on a hunt that is not typically seen. Even in this conversation, we're not talking about that, but man, that, that, that makes a difference. So I said all that to say, when me and you retire, Mark, <laughs> and we're no longer making outdoor media, come down to Arkansas and we'll go out and hunt for a week, set up, we'll, we'll set up a big camp and we'll, we'll really do it right. But right, we, we, we can't be documented. I mean, can't it can't. Be. Nope. I'm on board. Sign me up. I'm uh, I'm in for this one. This sounds good to me, Clay. I uh, right. I thoroughly enjoyed our time, and and I want to give you one opportunity here, real quick, for folks that want to learn more about Boone or f- the Folsom site, all the other cool stuff that you've been exploring or getting into. Can you just plug where they can find all the good work you're doing these days? Yeah. So check out Bear Grease. So Bear Grease is a meat eater production, just like Wired to Hunt is. So Mark and I are colleagues, and um, yeah, Bear Grease podcast. Type it in. Bear Grease is a documentary style podcast, typically under an hour long. And on any given podcast, we might have three to five different guests that talk about these issues. And and uh, we will we'll pick topics. And um, you know, like we did a whole, we did a three part series on Daniel Boone. We had really the best guests you could have in North America. I I, th- I feel like so we, we we're getting some good guys on. And the Folsom site would be a good example. We, we're doing a actually a four part series on Folsom. My dog's treeing a squirrel out here, Mark. I don't know if you can hear <laughs> that. Um, That's great. I, I probably need to go shoot it out. It's very on um, brand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, oh, she's looking at it too, man. When she when Tess starts barking like that, she's looking at it. Um, <laughs> I'll let you Folsom, get after it. The Folsom site uh, series is just fascinating. We went to the world's expert on Folsom, an archaeologist named Dr. David Meltzer. And um, so anyway, yep, fun stuff, man. Kind of kind of a deep dive, but uh, kind of different, different than most podcasts, I guess. Yeah, well, I, I've told you in person, and I'll say it again for everyone to hear. It is, it's truly fantastic. Like you're really doing a great job. There's a lot of podcasts out there these days and I don't like to listen to most of them, but, uh, but bear grease is the real deal. So well done clay. And, uh, thank you for doing you and thanks for having me up there this year. Yeah, Mark really appreciate it, man. Thank you. All right. And that's it. Appreciate you being here. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. I hope you're with friends and family. I hope you are enjoying a little time off maybe some time outside, and uh, just hope you wrap up this year in a really great way. Thanks for being with us all these past 12 months. Can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Until next time, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. 
You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 